Good morning. This morning's message is titled, Participating in the Completed Work of Christ. And if you've been following our series at Calvary through 1 Peter, you might realize that this morning's message focuses on the last five verses of last week. This is a good reminder that meaning is a circle, not a dot. When we are looking at scripture, we should never be content to say, I have looked at those verses, I know what they say, I am ready to move on. This does not give us license to hunt for hidden meanings. There's always a target and we should be aiming for the center of that target. At the same time, there is a wealth of what the Lord has to say to us. And so this morning we will be looking at our collective participation in the completed work of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Listen now. This is God's word. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. That your word provides all that is necessary for life and godliness. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would use your word to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus. It is in his powerful and precious name that we pray. Amen. The song Santa Claus is coming to town has been recorded by over 200 artists, including Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Mariah Carey, Michael Bublé. And the whole idea in the song is that because Santa is coming, we need to be careful how we're acting. That if Santa comes and he doesn't find us living properly, there will be consequences. The song tells us he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you have been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. You better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. And I wonder if often as believers, if we trade the gospel for a Santa view of Jesus. If we trade the gospel which says that Jesus has completed every work of the law on our behalf in favor of a view that we better watch out because 
Jesus is coming. Maybe a version would be, you better watch out, you better not lie. Christians shouldn't doubt, I'm telling you why. Jesus Christ is coming to town. He sees you when you're sinning, he knows if you're a fake. We could go on and parody the entire song, but the point is simply this. We often default to that legalistic interpretation of the gospel, especially when we come to passages that deal with the end of all things and the return of Christ. And yet in this morning's passage, that is not the primary focus. Last week, Thomas gave us a sober warning of the reality of suffering in the lives of believers and our call to remain faithful in the midst of that suffering. This morning, we're going to see that Peter calls us elect exiles to join arms together in advancing the kingdom of Christ. We're going to see a logical progression of two points. First, Christ's work on the cross is complete. There's nothing we can do to add to that which Christ has already completed for us. The second point is we are called to participate in the coming kingdom. And this morning's text has a congregational thread running through it. We are called to participate in the coming kingdom. So first, Christ's work on the cross is complete. Peter begins in verse 7 by saying, the end of all things is near. Now, knowing that the end is near shifts our perspective. It shifts how we think, how we feel, and what we do. Think about a soccer game when you're down by one goal, and you know that there's only three minutes left. The team that's winning may pull their defense or pull their offense and play more defensively to maintain their advantage because they know the end is near. The losing team may pull their defense and press more offensively because they know the end is near. Knowing that the end is near changes our priorities. And so the question we need to ask is, what does Peter mean by the end of all things is near? A common claim is that the apostles thought Jesus was returning within their lifetime, and so anytime they're talking about the end, they assumed Jesus is going to be back next Friday. Now, we know that, that that didn't happen in the case of Peter, and we need to be careful that we don't assume that the author of Scripture got it wrong. Peter was not convinced that Jesus was coming back, and so he's writing to these elect exiles, you better watch out next Friday, Jesus Christ is coming to town. When it comes to Scripture and authorial intent in Scripture, we need to make sure that we preserve the superintending power of the Holy Spirit. Peter did not get it wrong in what he said. And in his sovereignty, God chose to use a variety of authors to draw from their personal experience in writing scripture. It's not by accident that David, a shepherd, is the one who wrote Psalm 23, 
to describe the Lord's care for his people. It's not a coincidence that Paul, a former teacher of the law, was the apostle who wrote Romans with the exacting precision of a legal mind. And let us not miss the testimony to the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit that Peter, who cut off a guard's ear, denied his Lord and ran away, is the apostle that calls us to always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that we have. Peter, who denied his Lord and ran, is the same Peter who is calling us to stand firm in the midst of persecution. Our natural tendency when we hear the end is near is to think in terms of time. The end of the fourth quarter, it's getting near the end of a movie, the end of a book, maybe even the end of a sermon. Don't worry, the end is near. (laughs) However, this is not the way that the Bible in general, or Peter in particular, talks about the end. Peter's not focused on when Christ will return, He's focused on the tension between what Christ has already accomplished on the cross and the next big thing. The tension between the death and resurrection of Christ and his return. Peter's not speaking of a quantity of time, but a quality of time. The quality of time on this side of the cross And so the end of all things is best summarized by Jesus' three words on the cross. It is finished. Christ's work on the cross is complete. There's nothing left for Jesus to do. That's why he sat down at the right hand of the Father. You sit down when your work is finished. Christ's work on the cross is complete. And so the end of all things is near is not a statement about how soon Jesus will return. It is an emphatic proclamation that Christ's return is the next big thing. In fact, a more literal translation of verse 7 would be the end of all things has drawn near. Peter uses a perfect verb tense. And a perfect verb is a completed action in the present time. It has drawn near. Peter does not use a future verb tense. He does not say the end of all things will come. He says it has come. Because Christ's work on the cross is complete. Notice what it is that Peter says is completed or finished. All things. As a teacher, if one of my students were to write the phrase all things, I would ask them to be more specific. What in the world does all things mean? Doesn't all things sound like a generalization? And yet we need to realize that throughout the New Testament, the phrase all things is used to describe the creator-creature distinction and relationship the distinction between the creator Christ and his creation. Throughout the gospels, Jesus told his followers, the father has handed over to me all things. 
This morning's New Testament reading from Colossians 1, in those five verses, the Apostle Paul uses the phrase all things six times to explain the creator-creature relationship. Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and through him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood shed on the cross. So for Peter to say the end of all things has drawn near, he is saying that King Jesus finished everything he came to accomplish. It is finished. And he is presently reigning over all things as his kingdom unfolds on earth as it is in heaven. The flow or the logical progression of First Peter does not lead to this Santa view of Jesus, where Christians need to live anxiously to maintain what Jesus has accomplished for us. Christ's work on the cross is complete. Isn't it interesting how we can struggle to live in light of that great truth? how we can fall into the trap of legalism, where we try to add to what Christ has accomplished on my behalf. Where it is finished doesn't apply to me, and I have to earn or pay for that which has already been freely given to me. This Santa view of Jesus works hard to make sure that we look good when Christ returns. When I was a Teenager, my youth group went to the same summer camp every year, Teen Valley Ranch. And my poor youth pastor thought it was a good idea to load 50 kids onto a bus and drive 20 hours from Miami, Florida to the mountains of North Carolina. And we had a week of morning services followed by hiking and horseback riding, rock climbing, archery, services every evening. And every week of camp, the counselors picked a cow, C-O-W, a camper of the week. Every week of camp, a different cow was chosen. And so one year, I made it my goal to be that cow. And so as I saw a couple counselors walking over the hill, I did what anyone in my position would do. I found a garbage can pulled out the trash bag, and started picking up trash on the ground right as they were walking by. And it worked. I was the camper of the week. I got a free t-shirt from the camp store, free snacks, free ice cream. My name was printed in the camp newspaper. Friends from church congratulated me. It worked. It did not uh, work the next year when I tried again. But the question that this morning's text asks of us is simply this. If I am honest, do I tend to look over my shoulder for Santa Jesus? 
to congratulate me? Do we work hard to impress God so that we can be a cow, a Christian of the week? How does it is finished challenge the way I tend to navigate daily life? Maybe another way of asking this is, how do we rest in the finished work of Christ? Peter gives us the answer. The second point of this morning's passage is our call to participate in the coming kingdom. This already but not yet tension is exactly where we are called to live because God invites us to participate in his coming kingdom. The theological term for this is a means of grace. A means of grace is simply a way or a means that God uses his creation to accomplish his will. God chooses to use us to bring his will about. And in his sovereign wisdom, he has chosen to include his church in the process of advancing his kingdom. Verse 7 tells us our response to Christ ruling over all things. Our response is to be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Peter is calling us to live in that tension between the already and the not yet by viewing God's world correctly. Being alert and sober-minded is a submission of our mind to the mind of Christ. This is not a half-hearted acceptance of some technical theological truth. It is a intentional practice of focusing our thoughts on Christ. Just as Jesus rebuked Peter, telling him, Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man, Peter now exhorts us to think God's thoughts after him. We are to be alert and not have our mind by clouded, clouded by anything that raises itself against the knowledge of Christ. Notice how Peter instructs us to do this. The ESV says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You see, the way that our mind is conformed to the will of God is through our prayer. When we pray, not my will, but your will be done, we are in fact asking God to renovate our heart and our mind so that we, so that we think Christ's thoughts after him. Our minds are conformed to the will of God through our prayer. Have you ever considered why Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? If God uses my prayer to sanctify me, and my natural hatred for my enemy is wanting what is worst for them, but my praying for them is asking God for his best for them, those two attitudes and dispositions cannot coexist. I cannot simultaneously in my heart say, I want the very worst for this person, but God, would you please give them your very best? That doesn't work. And so me praying for my enemy is God changing my heart and my mind to align with his will. 
Remember the reality of Peter's original audience, these elect exiles. Peter encourages them to be rooted in the finished work of the cross and keep their eyes on the next big thing. And the way we do this is through prayer, which will align our hearts, our minds, and our actions with the coming kingdom. Peter continues in verse 8, saying, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now here, similar to prayer, Peter explains that love for the body of Christ is a means of grace. It's a means of participating in rolling back the curse of sin and advancing the kingdom of God. The NIV, I think, misses an important word choice on Peter's part because the word translated all here in verse 8 is the same word translated all things in verse 7. So notice the point that Peter is making. The end of all things has come because Christ's work is finished. The end of all things has come. So above all things, we love each other. Because of what Christ has accomplished, our response is to love each other. Now, there are many things that love each other does not mean. Love is one of the most loosely defined and ambiguous words threatening the church today. Love each other does not mean take the easy way out of challenging circumstances. It does not mean do whatever makes you happy. It does not mean avoid speaking the truth. But because the end of all things has drawn near, above all things we are to love as Christ loved. And Jesus promised that if we love one another that the world will know that we are his. When Peter says, above all things love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins, the covering of sins that he is speaking of is not forgiveness of sins. Peter's not saying that our loving each other is somehow equivalent to God's love and the work of Christ on the cross. He is not speaking of salvation, he's speaking of our sanctification. That's why John writes in 1 John 4, 1, since God loved us, so we also ought to love one another. Because when we love each other, we are putting into practice being like Christ. The end of all things has drawn near, so above all things, we are called to practice loving each other as a means of grace. In verse 10, Peter transitions into practical ways that as a church, we are to work together to further the kingdom of God. He writes, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve. Notice that he explains that our various giftings are again a means of God's grace. 
The rest of verse 10 says that we do this as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And so God has given us different gifts for the purpose of linking arms together, being that means of grace to each other, and furthering the kingdom together. When you use your gifts to serve the body of Christ, you are a means of grace. This is not us doing God a favor. God does not need us, of course, to accomplish his will. But God has chosen to use his church to advance his kingdom. I have a six-year-old daughter who loves to help. And recently I was packing for a two-week trip that I took, and she wanted to help me pack my suitcase. Now you can probably guess how that went. It took longer than if I did it by myself. The clothes were not folded as neatly or rolled as neatly as if I had done it myself. From a purely pragmatic standpoint, there was no reason to allow her to help me. However, my choice to invite her into helping me was not for my benefit that I could pack quickly and efficiently. It was for her benefit. To grow in her understanding of what daddy was doing and to participate in my work with me. By choosing to allow the church to participate in this process, we benefit because our wills are conformed to the will of God. And so Peter gives practical instruction for doing this collectively. Verse 11 says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Notice that in verses 10 and 11, Peter categorizes two primary ways that we do this. Ministries of service and ministries of teaching. Verse 10 explains that each of us have been given a variety of gifts that we must exercise to advance this kingdom. And verse 11 takes that a step further by fleshing out those two categories. Regarding the gift of teaching, Peter says if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Peter does not praise eloquence or clever illustrations or a commanding stage presence. Peter's sole focus is that those who have been equipped by the Holy Spirit to teach the word of God are to be faithful to the word of God. This is the gift of prophecy in its truest sense. In modern English, we tend to think of prophecy as telling the future. But the role of the prophet is to take God's word and present it to God's people. That's why in the Old Testament, when you see prophets coming to deliver a message, they always preface it. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. What I'm about to tell you is not my word, it is God's word. He does not proclaim his word, he proclaims God's word. And so those who teach God's word must be faithful to God's word. Think of Paul's advice to young Timothy, the pastor who was struggling at his church. Was Paul's advice to Timothy, show them how smart you are, Timothy. 
prove to them that you deserve to be their pastor. Tim, if you just work really hard on making eye contact, I'm sure you'll win over the church in no time. Paul's sole encouragement to Timothy is be faithful to Scripture. Trust Scripture. Timothy, remember the Scripture that your mother and grandmother taught you, which now you proclaim on a weekly basis. Timothy, stay faithful to Scripture. And that's exactly what Peter exhorts all of us who have been given the gift of teaching to do within the church. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Now, verse 11 continues, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Again, we're reminded that our work to advance the kingdom of God is not God being dependent on us. We're not doing God any favors, and Peter makes it clear that our serving is with the strength that he provides. And yet, it's also clear from this text that God has uniquely equipped some of us for ministry of service. And once again, the act of practicing service is an act of practicing being like Christ. Gifts of service guide our imitation of Christ, who calls us first to be a servant of all. Christ, who did not come to be served, but to serve. Isn't it interesting that in these five verses we are reminded again and again of God's design to make his church more like Jesus? And God's design to include us in the process of collective sanctification through our service. In prayer, our wills align to God's will. In ministry of teaching, the words from our mouth are the words of God. Thank you. And in service, we are to follow the steps of our Lord who humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. By God's grace, your particular gifts are probably not the gifts of the person sitting next to you. Because our exercising of our gifts builds the body and advances the kingdom. As we are faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, we are practicing living out God's grace towards each other. For the sake of advancing the kingdom. And so what is the ultimate purpose of our serving with the gifts God has given us? Peter tells us that it is so that in all things Christ might be praised. So in all things God might be praised through Jesus Christ. Notice that, that Peter is showing the result or the conclusion of what he has said up to this point. As we as a church link arms serving each other, the result, the so that, is that God is glorified. Peter tells us the ultimate purpose or reason of our service is the glory of Christ. 
We don't pick up pieces of trash on the ground so that we can get a free t-shirt. We don't teach junior church to make ourselves feel good. We serve each other out of obedience to Christ for the glory of Christ. Verse 11 ends with a benediction. And it kind of seems out of place in the book of 1 Peter. There's still a chapter and a half left, but doesn't this text read the way that many New Testament letters end? To him be the glory and the power forever and ever, amen. If you didn't know more was coming, that would seem like a fitting conclusion to the book. And so why does Peter break into this spontaneous praising of God? Because he's just finished laying out God's plan for us as a church to grow together in practicing our gifts as a means of grace in each other's life for the glory of God. And Peter cannot help but stop and praise God. God's kingdom is already here. Christ's work on the cross is complete. It is finished. And it's this tension between Christ's finished work and the next big thing that we're called to live in and participate in the advancing of the kingdom. Our prayer and our practicing of gifts serves to orient our hearts and our minds as we ask God to work in his world. If this morning you are wondering what your role is in advancing the kingdom, listen to the words of verse 7. Pray that your mind and will would be conformed to God's mind and will. I want to offer six practical ways that we can do that. Six ways to pray. First, pray for kingdom priorities to become your priorities. Pray for kingdom priorities to become my priorities. We tend to think of that which is spiritual as being somehow less real. And we tend to treat spiritual priorities as secondary to physical immediate priorities. Pray that kingdom priorities would become your priorities. Second, pray for the advancement of God's kingdom through evangelism and missions. And this advancement through evangelism and missions includes both ministry of service and ministry of the word. Pray for the expansion of God's kingdom through the teaching of children within the church. Even right now in junior church. As a father, I love that my daughter hates missing church. I love that she cries when she misses church. And those of you who serve our children, teach our children, thank you. Pray for the expansion of the kingdom right now through the teaching of our children. Pray for perseverance for those who are suffering for kingdom causes. Those within our Calvary body, 
who are currently suffering for kingdom causes, those in Brazil, those in the Ukraine. Pray for boldness to live as citizens of Christ's kingdom. That as our will aligns with his will, that the Holy Spirit would give us boldness to act upon that will. And then finally, pray for the return of the king. And notice that in praying for the advancement of the kingdom, our priorities become God's priorities. Our will is conformed to his will. And in all of this, we link arms as a church as a means of grace in each other's lives to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the church and your desire to use your body to advance your kingdom. We recognize that it's not by our might or power, but by your Holy Spirit that this is done. And yet you have called us to participate in rolling back the curse of sin and advancing your kingdom. Would you be pleased to use even us to do this? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.